throughout the past year, we've been reading and studying together the gospel according to John, and I believe that God has been feeding us and, and shaping our congregation with it. He's certainly been deepening our conviction about Jesus. I think he's been strengthening our love for Jesus, our hope in Jesus, and he's creating in us a a stronger desire to live more and more faithfully for Jesus, teaching us what that looks like. And, And I sense that the Lord is really strengthening our congregation through this year, through this study. John, the gospel according to John, is one of four ancient biographies that reports the best news ever. Last week, we hit the, uh, the turning point in John when we came to chapter 13, because in the first 12 chapters, Jesus is working signs. They're called signs. It's an interesting term. He's working signs. That is, he's performing miracles that signify something more important than the miracle itself. And what those miracles are signifying is who Jesus is. That Jesus is God's appointed Savior for the world. He is the creator become human. He is the one who can forgive human rebellion. He is the one who has the power not only to create life, but to raise the dead and remake life. Jesus is the Son of Man who will be worshipped by all peoples, all ethnicities, forever. He's going to rule as king on earth and be submitted to by everyone. That's Jesus. And John has been saying for 12 chapters, do you realize what these signs signify? Do you realize who they're pointing toward? And he uses like 70 times in the first 12 chapters the word believe, believe, believe. Basically saying these people didn't believe. I'm writing these so that you would believe. Some people believed. That made them believe even more. He's talking about conviction. Do you believe who Jesus is? Have you arranged your life around reality? That's what the concept of believe means. It means submitting to this reality. John's focus then in chapter 13 really shifts to preparing those who do believe for life in Jesus' absence. When Jesus is crucified, raised again, then ascends to heaven, what is it like to live without Jesus, to live for Jesus in a hostile world but without him? And the shift, the, uh, the focus shifts, the emphasis shifts from believe to love. It's not that either of them becomes entirely absent. It's just that it shifts from trust him, commit your life to him, no matter what, believe. It shifts into a dominant, if you believe Jesus, then love him and love those who belong to him, no matter how hard it is to follow him, no matter how hard it is to love others. The emphasis shifts. Now today we're reading chapter 14, and it is crucial to remember as we read these words in which Jesus is giving instruction and counsel to his disciples who are about to be without him, it's crucial to remember the kind of stress that he's under. 
He fully knows that within a few hours, he is going to be arrested. He's going to be unjustly tried. He's going to be crucified. He's going to die. Jesus knows what's ahead for him. He knows that his time to be with his disciples is limited. That's why some people refer to this as Jesus' farewell address. It's almost like his words from his deathbed. He's going to be with them very little in the future. He's under that kind of emotional stress. He's also fully aware that these disciples are now going to pretty much live the rest of their lives without him and that the immediate future is horrible for them. They're all going to scatter. They're all going to defect. So as circumstances are changing, he knows that right out of the gate, their noses are going to hit the dirt. He's under the stress, the weight of all this that's happening. He knows that Peter, for example, has just said, I don't know where you're going, but I'm never going to leave you. And Jesus knows that Peter, this very day, within 24 hours, is going to deny three times that he even knows who Jesus of Nazareth is. I do not know the man, Peter's going to say. So he knows that, like, Peter is, he has an inflated view of himself. He's proud. He compares himself to the other disciples. They all might, not me. And he's just flat out wrong. He's completely self-deceived. You just try to put all that together. The frustration that could be in his heart, the sadness, the stress. And this is what Jesus says, chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Does that make you want to cry? To see the love of Jesus? He's about to leave. They're about to fail. And he says, don't let your heart be troubled. The man under the most intense stress, with a ragtag bunch of weak followers around him, is encouraging them supporting them to the end. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. Now, parallel commands like that would be blasphemy if Jesus isn't equal with God. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or dwellings, places to live. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. I want to pause the reading there for just a minute and reflect on two facets of what Jesus has just said. He says he's going to prepare a place where the disciples will eventually live. 
I take this to mean that Jesus is going to construct the new heavens and the new earth, which will one day come down to earth from heaven, as described in Revelation. So I think this means, I don't think it's too far-fetched to understand that one of the things that Jesus has been engaged in for the last 2,000 years has been a massive construction project. City building, house construction, interior design, landscape, transportation development, communication strategy, building fences with gemstones and paving roads with gold. Jesus is constructing the new heavens and new earth. He told his disciples, I'm going to prepare that place for you. I don't think it's too far-fetched to say that saints and angels are engaged in this work with him. That the people in heaven are not only continually saying, how long, O Lord, until you bring justice and peace on earth. They're not only longing for Christ's kingdom to finally come, but they are also preparing Christ's kingdom to take over on earth. This is what Jesus says in verse 2. He's going to prepare this place where his people will live with him forever. And verse 3 then, the second thing I want to point out, is that Jesus, when he says, I will come again and will take you to myself, he is promising the rapture, a term for the catching up or the catching away. It's described in greater detail in 1 Thessalonians 4. Jesus is going to return and catch his disciples away to be with himself. And then Jesus says, verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. According to the book of Acts, this is a bit of biblical trivia that you may or may not know. According to the book of Acts, like you might just put Acts 9-2, the way was one of the earliest descriptors of Christianity. Paul found people who belonged to the way. That means he found other followers of Jesus. Who's the way? It's called the way about five or six times in the book of Acts because Jesus claimed to be the way, the only way to God. And one scholar, Don Carson, puts it like this. He says, Jesus is the way to God precisely because, as John describes elsewhere, he is the truth of God and the life of God. And Carson goes on to say, very accurately, Christianity is not merely one religion among many. Other religions are ineffective in bringing people to God. There's one true God, and there is one way to him. That is the necessary stance behind all effective evangelism. It's why we support people in all regions of the earth. It's why in the last month we've heard about people who've been right on the south border of North Korea encouraging defectors 
supporting defectors and then trying to disciple defectors when they cross into safety. It's why we've heard people describing their burden for Uzbekistan, going into the mountainous valleys of Uzbekistan where there may be a few thousand unreached people who've never heard the gospel. It's because Jesus is the only way. Muhammad is not one way up the mountain. The teachings of Buddha are not another way up the mountain getting to the same peak. That is a false view of reality. There's one God, and there's one way to God. Jesus is the way. It's what Jesus communicates so clearly here in John. Following Jesus is the way. And then he challenges the disciples. He's really reviewing teaching that he's given them all throughout the years he's been with them. Verse 7, if you had known me, you'd have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, wait, wait, wait. Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I'm not speaking on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the very works themselves. So Jesus is challenging his disciples once again. It has been dominant throughout his ministry that he is God the Son. He is the Father's perfect ambassador. To hear Jesus speak and to see Jesus act is to witness God the Father act and to hear God the Father speak. They are one. They're working in complete unity. And then Jesus again continues his words of encouragement to his disciples. Verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask me in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Just one brief comment here. When Jesus says, if you ask anything in my name, he's not simply saying if you say those words in my name as if they're some kind of formula or spell. No, those words in my name refer to prayer requests that are for his mission. Prayer requests that are submitted to his authority and leadership. I'm I'm praying this, Lord Jesus, because I believe it's in keeping with what you're doing And I'm submitting my request to your will. That's what it means to pray or to ask requests in his name. And then he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I think he means he's been dwelling with you as I've been with you. And now there's coming a shift. He will be in you. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. 
Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So Jesus is actually like setting up framework for the future. He's saying, in a little while you're going to see me. I think he means by that, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And for a little while you're going to see me immediately. And then there's going to be a long time you won't see me. But because of my resurrection, you're actually going to be bodily raised from the dead eventually too. So he's saying, you're going to see me now. You're certainly going to see me forever. And in the meanwhile, you're going to experience my presence through the Spirit. Verse 20, in that day you will know that I'm in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we'll come in and make our home with him. Hmm. We'll dwell with him. You got to connect that with the first couple verses of John 14, where Jesus basically says, putting them together, until you come and dwell with me, in the dwelling I'm preparing for you, I will come and make my home, my dwelling in you through my spirit. Whoever does not love me, verse 24, does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father and the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me, but I do just as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let's go from here. And it's at this point that Jesus might get up from the upper room where he's just had the Passover meal with his disciples and start walking toward Gethsemane, where he knows that Judas is leading a team of soldiers to arrest him. Jesus' farewell words, words of comfort, they can comfort you, they can comfort me throughout the rest of our lives. To get the main point of what Jesus says, I think you just need to look at the bookends of John 14, right? In verse 1, then again in verse 27. He's getting ready to leave them. In fact, he's getting ready to die, and he says, verse 1, your hearts must not be troubled. Don't let your heart be troubled. Again, at the end of verse 27, he knows that they're getting ready to fail, to scatter. And he says, your hearts must not be troubled. You must not be fearful. So I would say that the main point of John 14 is this. Those who follow Jesus must never live in fear. Instead, 
we can live with unshakable peace no matter how bad our present circumstances or personal failures. Despite the fact that Jesus is not with us in body, disciples of Jesus can live without fear. Disciples of Jesus, in fact, can live with day-to-day unshakable peace no matter how bad our present circumstances or our personal failures. This is the message of John 14. So I'm going to start applying it, and then I'm going to give some of the foundation. Okay. Are you someone who obeys the commands of verse 1? Do you believe in God and believe in Jesus? Are you convinced that Jesus is the representative of God, the Father? Are you convinced that he's God the Son? That he perfectly reveals God? That everything he said is true? That he's the creator? He's the one who can give life? He's the one who can beat death? Do you believe Jesus? Have you committed your life to him? Have you said to him, Jesus, you are the only way that I can be forgiven of my selfish rebellion. Your cross bore the punishment that I deserve. And if I trust you, God can accept your punishment in my place as my substitute. Jesus, I need you. I need you to be reconciled to God. I need you if I'm going to have any hope being reconciled to God now and forever. You're the only way. If you have not believed Jesus, I urge you to do it today. Obey command one. The message of comfort, of fearlessness, of peace is not for you if you have not yet believed Jesus. But if you have believed Jesus, if you have confessed him as the only way to God, and you've committed your life to him, then this main point is for you. You have no need to fear. You can live with unshakable peace no matter what your circumstance, no matter how bad you fail. These words of comfort are for you if you have committed your life to Jesus. Let me take the application just a little further and say, Christians, Christians, Are you afraid this morning? Are you lacking peace? Are you unsettled because of things going on in the world? You read national, international headlines. Disturbs you. Are you in turmoil because your sense is that the relationships I have are deteriorating? Or because present stressors just feel unbearable. Maybe you've prayed this week, Jesus, why don't you come today? Because you think that peace is going to come when he comes back. And it will. But the whole point of John 14 is designed to give you peace now. Until he comes back. We're not waiting for peace. Jesus communicated John 14 to give us peace, comfort us with peace today. It's not that we won't have peace until he comes. It's we should have peace all the way until he comes. We don't have to live in fear until Jesus returns. 
We don't have to wait for peace to come until Jesus comes. We can experience a peaceful fearlessness today. That's John 14. So now let me give the foundations. You say, how in the world? How in the world do Christians live with day-to-day peace and not an ounce of fear? There are at least three reasons that I see or three answers to that question, how. That is, every Christian should live with day-to-day peace and not an ounce of fear. First, because we now clearly know where Jesus is, what he's doing, and that we'll soon be with him there. This is settling. It's in the first 11 verses that Jesus is more or less responding to three questions that are really one question. The first question, if you look back at 1337, John 1337, it's where Peter said, Lord, why can't I follow you right now? Then there comes Thomas's question in chapter 14, verse 5. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we possibly know how to get there? And then the third is Philip's in verse 8. Lord, if you're the way to the Father, then just take us right to him. Bring us there now. Each of these questions is basically focused on the same issue. Jesus, where are you going? And in responding to them, Jesus gives us the first reason that we should never live with fear. It's because we know where he is. Right now, Jesus is with the Father. And we know what he's doing there. He's preparing the place where we're going to live. And because we're going to soon be with him. He's going to come and take us to himself. That's the language, for what it's worth, of marriage, in which a fiancé comes to catch his bride away and take her to the home he's built for her, for the, the two of them to live together after the marriage ceremony. This is... The, the, the language of marriage. And is that a daily source of comfort for you? I know where Jesus is. I know what he's doing there. And I know he's going to come back and take me there. That should give you peace. Should allow you to live without fear. Jesus, the lover of your soul, is committed to you. He's constructing your dwelling right now. And he's going to come catch you away to be with him. You know where he is. You know what he's doing. And you know he's coming back. Are you afraid that some 80,000 Taliban soldiers are now personally targeting our brothers and sisters They're searching houses for Bibles, opening phones, looking for Bible apps. Are you unsettled? Because you read national headlines and you say our freedoms are under attack, especially religious freedom. Forget headlines. Are you ticked that you're such a pathetic disciple? Does it disturb you how 
weak your attempts at following Jesus are? The words of Jesus are, don't be afraid. I'm going to give you peace day by day by day. It's enough. The second reason that we can live with peace, not an ounce of fear, is because we now experience power through prayer that's in some ways greater than the power Jesus displayed. It's verses 12 to 14. We experience a power in prayer that's in some ways greater than the power that Jesus displayed. You see that? Verse 12, Jesus promises his followers will do works, the works he did, and even greater. You say, how in the world are his followers doing works that are greater than like making a lame man walk, making a blind man see, making a dead man live? Well, there's no doubt that this applied immediately to the first generation, right? So you read the book of Acts, and Peter and John do pray in the name of Jesus and make a lame man walk. The apostles, Acts chapter 5, heal many who are sick. You keep reading, Peter and Paul, through miraculous angelic deliverances, walk out of prisons. You keep reading, Peter raises a woman who's just died, name is Tabitha, to life. His disciples in the next generation did repeat some of the very works he did. But this promise isn't just for the first generation who went about doing works like Jesus did and planting seeds of the gospel all throughout the hostile Roman world. It's also for us today. You say, what in the world? How can it be that the church engages in works that are greater than Jesus? I think there are four ways, okay? I'll work through these fairly quickly. But first, the church's works today are greater in duration. That is, Jesus's power to save was evident on earth for a few years, while the church's power has been evident for a few millennia. It's greater duration. It's not simply that, but it is that. Second, Jesus performed works, and the church performed similar works in Jesus' power, but the church's works are greater in extent. Jesus influenced, in his time on earth, populations of maybe thousands in one region of the world, while the church has influenced literally billions who are scattered in every region of the world. For example, our country, 6,000 miles from Israel, has millions of evangelical Christians. Throughout the 1900s, throughout the last century, the church in Africa and the church in China multiplied exponentially. Massive growth of the church. Hundreds of millions. The church has greater works also in the sense of their variety. Over the centuries since Jesus, Christ's power has been seen in churches engaging in 
Sunday school outreaches. Sunday school originally was held, especially in Europe, Britain, Sunday afternoons. Thousands and thousands of children in the late 1800s were converted through Sunday school outreaches of poor, needy children. The church has engaged in massive underground cellular networking and expansion. Well, Christ's power has also been seen in believers remaining faithful through decades in tough churches or in tough marriages. Churches engaging in adoption. Churches establishing orphanages. But I think the most significant meaning behind Jesus' greater than, the, the church, the future generations are going to do things greater than I've done, is that these works are greater in clarity. That is, since Jesus' death and resurrection, every advance of the church signifies more clearly than anything before that Jesus is Lord. Let me explain. That's something that Jesus' disciples, even on this very night, were still fuzzy about. It's why Jesus has to keep saying, wait, wait, haven't I made it clear enough yet who I actually am? After Jesus is crucified, risen, and ascended to heaven, every work that is done in his name signifies Jesus is Lord more clearly than anything people picked up beforehand. Every display of Christ's power in the history of the church communicates the truth with great clarity, Jesus is Lord. Now, I want to park here just a minute and talk just a little bit about church history. Okay, Church history is filled with examples of persecution and tragedy. It is filled with examples, moments of apathy and hypocrisy. But church history is filled with greatness. The power of Christ being worked in his people. Church history is phenomenal. Think for a minute about a guy I spent a few years studying, David Brainerd, 28 years old. He's praying every day. Most people describe the reading of his journals as agony because he's praying every day that the Indians, the Native Americans in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, that they will embrace Christ. He's gone to live among them, and he's praying constantly for the glory of Jesus' name, among the Native Americans. And in 1746, he sees 80 converted before he dies at 29 of tuberculosis that he had his whole life. Power! It's great. You think about Marge Saint, right? The picture of Marge Saint here. Her husband, Nate, is one of five men including Jim Elliott, who prayed constantly for the Aka Indians, the Harani tribe in Ecuador, praying for their conversion. 
And instead of converting them, Marge's husband, Nate, was one of five men who was killed by them, a group of at least six Harani on the beach, January 6, 1956. Kill Marge Saint's husband. Marge eventually had the privilege of seeing four of those six men come to Christ, including Minkaya, who's pictured here. He's the man who speared her husband. Became a follower of Jesus. She met him, forgave him, hugged him. He would become a pastor among the Harani. Greatness! And I say, think about Tri-County. Since the beginning, Pastor Chris used to tell this story all the time as he was driving out to the Bible study in Harpersfield. Christ, you've promised you'll build your church. Build it for your glory. And we're a pretty weak church filled with problems. It begins right up here. We've got 140 members but some 20% of our members, I'm not counting those who've gone to be with the Lord, those who've moved away, those who are preparing to be baptized. 20% of our present members have come to Christ through the ministry of this church in some way. That's God's power at work, still at work. That's great power. And all of these signs, if you will, signify Jesus is Lord. Whether it's Brainerd among the Native Americans, or Marge Saint among the Harani, or whether it's people being saved slow and steady one by one through the ministry of Tri-County Bible Church. God's power is at work, and when his power is shown, something is clearly highlighted, and that is Jesus is Lord. Crucified, risen, ascended, and returning, he's Lord. The power is continuing. Third reason that we do not give in to an ounce of fear, but instead live with unshakable peace day by day, is because we enjoy the constant presence of the helper. The helper. This is the last half of the chapter, and I'm going to come back to this theme in weeks ahead, especially as we get into chapter 16, and it becomes dominant again. But I speak it in conclusion here. The majority of this chapter, John 14, actually focuses on Jesus' gift of the Holy Spirit to the disciples. You can see it in verse 16. The Spirit is referred to as another helper, the Spirit of truth. Or in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit. Scripture presents God as triune. That means he's three in one, three persons in one being, Father, Spirit, and Son. And the Son right here is promising that he's going to give the Spirit to help the disciples. A helper is someone who consoles someone who encourages, someone who mediates, even in legal disputes. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit has been given to us, as one scholar, Andreas Kostenberger, put it, our helping presence. Hmm. His mission, the mission of the Spirit, is to be with us, disciples, 
to help and sustain our love for Jesus and our obedience to Jesus. He's our help. The Spirit has been given to us by Jesus to help strengthen our assurance that Jesus loves us and that Jesus is going to fulfill his promises to us. The Spirit is with us to help us and to solidify our experience of Jesus' peace in our trials. He's Christ's helper to help us love Christ, obey Christ, follow Christ, get back up, be assured of Christ's love, be assured that Christ is Lord, be assured that Christ's promises are going to be fulfilled. That's the Spirit's mission to help us. Now, I just want to point out in conclusion that the Spirit's ministry to us is not felt. It's experienced. I am speaking to a culture. American culture since about the 1950s has been described as a therapeutic culture. We're most in touch with our feelings. What Jesus is saying here is not that you're going to feel the Spirit in your hard times. He's not promising a feeling of presence. He's promising an actual presence that you will experience. He's not describing a presence that you're going to feel in the hard times. Don't be looking for a feeling, Christian. He's describing a presence, a helper, who is permanently with you, whether you feel it, sense it, or not. The helper is with every disciple. And the way you know that you're experiencing the ministry of the supporter, the strong helper, is that you keep following Jesus. That you keep assured of Jesus' cleansing you from all your sin. That you keep submitting to Jesus' word. That you keep committed to Jesus' church. That you keep longing for Jesus' return. You keep on. It's something that's not felt, but it's experienced. It's something that you see in hindsight. In other words, you look back on your life, you look back over the difficulties of your life, and you say in hindsight, I didn't always feel the Spirit's presence. In fact, I felt it rarely. But he never left me. He helped me keep on every moment of every day. He was with me. That will be the testimony of every Christian. And that's why, even though Jesus himself isn't with us in person, and we can't, can't wait for him to be, even though he's not, we can live without one ounce of fear and with day-to-day peace. Let's pray. Spirit, right now, I pray that we would thank God the Father and God the Son for giving you to be with us forever. 
I know that so many in this room look back over the last year, or maybe the last 10 or 20 years, and their testimony is that you have been leading them into truth. You have been rescuing them from really weird, wacky Christian ideas. And you have been teaching them to read and study and understand and and apply to their lives the Bible. God, I thank you for dwelling in us to lead us into the truth and to keep us, support us as followers of Jesus. I pray that we would all respond to your truth today by committing to you our fears, our worries, the things that are unsettling us, and that we would receive this truth. May it find a home in our hearts so that we would not be just hearers of this word, but actual doers of it, so that this week, with all of its challenges, we would experience with peace and not an ounce of fear. Jesus, may you be glorified as we put your truth to action. Amen. Amen.